Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're excited to officially be with you in August. I'm trying to get down here as much as I can uh, to visit with you uh, and minister among you between now and then. We'll be here about once a month uh, between now and, and our first official Sunday in August. Uh, I don't know about you. I have gotten different opinions about people about, you know, this, this kind of waiting period. Somebody said, it's flying by and it'll be here before we know it. Uh, for me, it feels very far away. Um, but I've got a lot of ministry between now and August. Uh, we are already at um, full speed at Northland, getting ready for the summer, and uh, it'll just be a whirlwind. So I'm sure once once we kick off our summer ministries, it'll go fast. But we're lo- we're really looking forward to coming down and being with you full time. Um, we're excited. We hear good reports of things that are going on here at church, and. Um, we expect the Lord to do great things. Uh, it's going to be great. But I, I'm glad for the opportunity I have to be with you uh, and share God's word with you this morning. As I've been looking forward to the fall, uh, I've been thinking about where will we go in God's word and what will we do? And uh, there are some things that the Lord has really been laying on my heart lately and some things that have been influential in my life. And uh, I really think that we're going to spend quite a bit of time in the book of Mark. And so we're going to start this morning in a great place to start, which is Mark chapter 1. And uh, we're going to see uh, the simple story of Jesus. It's in black and white and so clear for us, especially in Mark's gospel, which is by far the shortest uh, of the gospels, the most succinct And it's also probably the most overlooked of the Gospels. For a long period of church history, Mark was thought of as um, the the original template for Matthew. And because of that, people kind of ignored the book of Mark and went straight to Matthew because Matthew gives us more details and expounds on things. But actually, I think that the book of Mark has some things to share with us about Christ that are unique. And it gives us a unique perspective, a unique portrait of our Savior. Um, So in just a moment, we'll be in Mark chapter 1. Before we are, I want to introduce to you kind of what this passage is about. Um, Have you ever heard this expression, never meet your heroes? Anybody ever say that to you? You ever heard somebody say that? Never meet your heroes, okay? Never meet your heroes, and it's implied, never meet your heroes because they'll always disappoint you, okay? If there's somebody that you really think is great and you really look up to, Um, If you meet them in person, you're going to be disappointed because they're probably not as great as you think they are. Um, And I don't know, maybe you have had a chance in your life to meet a hero, somebody that, you know, you looked at from afar, maybe you read their books or you've seen them on TV and you really look up to them. Or maybe even you've had a chance to meet a celebrity sometime in your life. Public figure, everybody knows them, household name, and you met them. You know, some happenstance. It's a story you tell all the time because it's so interesting. I remember uh, probably the closest I've ever come to that was uh, every time there is a uh, Republican primary, they will host um, like an interview family meeting type of thing at Bob Jones University, which is where I went to school. 
And while I was there, I was there for the 2016 election Republican primary. And uh, so right there on our campus, I mean, Secret Service everywhere, everything is locked down, metal detectors and everything. And uh, I took a day and just went and sat in on these, it wasn't a debate, it was like they'd come out one at a time and there was an interviewer and they would ask them questions and you could submit questions by text if you were present. And you know, all these um, news stations were there like with their cameras set up in the auditorium and everything. And you're there in the room. I mean, it's a room that we had chapel in four days a week. And uh, you're, you're there in the room, and you see these people that you've been watching on TV. And uh, it's kind of interesting that when that person that you've been seeing on TV, and you've been listening to their speeches, you've been following their campaign, and they walk out on the stage, and you're like, that's just a regular person. <laughs> you know? Maybe they're shorter than the guy interviewing them. You know? They... They just look like a guy. And you're kind of like, okay. It kind of puts things in perspective for you. Uh, it's not just talking heads on your TV. It's like, okay, this is a real person, and I need to be critical of them like they are a real person um, who's fallible and has their own issues and their own opinions and all that. And, and uh, you know, sometimes when you meet your heroes, it kind of puts it in perspective. I think the only other time I've ever met anything like a celebrity, I went to see a play in New York City with some movie personalities who were in it, and uh, it's just this classic American play. But afterward, you can stand outside of the cast door, and there's like a fence you stand behind. I don't know if you've ever done this after a play. And sometimes the cast will decide to come out the door. They don't have to, and they'll sign things and take pictures with you. And this play had a man named Tracy Letts. I don't know if you know him. He's been He's a minor movie celebrity. He was in it, did a great job in the play. He came out, I talked to him for a couple minutes. Just like, same deal. You see him, he's in movies. He was in the new um, Little Women movie, the newest one. Um, he's the editor. So anyway, so I met him, you know, I talked to him, and it was the same deal. It was like, this guy is just a guy. <laughs> he's just a guy, you know, and you, you Sometimes these people seem larger than life, and then you meet them in person, and then it's like, okay, they're not. They're just life-sized, okay? Uh, occasionally, though, you might meet someone in person who, and we have this expression for a reason, they seem larger than life when you meet them. Um, someone who, when you meet them, you realize this person is the real deal, and there is something special about this person. And sometimes when you meet someone who is the real deal, and they really are worth, worth looking up to. And usually, I think for us, that would probably be someone who you can just tell when you meet them that they are close with the Lord. It just kind of, there's this aura about them that they, that they have a good relationship with God and that they're living in service for him. Um, and when you're in the presence of a person like that, sometimes you actually feel a little bit smaller. It takes you down a notch. Uh, you're a little bit more likely to listen rather than speak. You're you mind your manners around them, you take initiative, you speak carefully, you remember your place because you realize that this person is, is different. And when we get to Mark 1 in a few moments, I'm hoping that the thing that we'll walk away with this morning is that when Mark introduces us to Jesus Christ for the very first time in his gospel, I'm hoping that we will all feel a little bit smaller. I actually think that's what Mark is going to do intentionally do for us in Mark 1. So he's going to make us feel a little bit smaller, and he's going to make Jesus seem a whole lot bigger. 
I hope we'll be reminded how great he is, that we should be listening to him, that we should be minding our manners, so to speak, that we should be taking initiative, that we should remember our position in him. We are launching into a new book, and you know that every time we launch into a new book, I like us to take a step back and, and recognize what this book is about and where it's coming from. So the book of Mark, uh, full title here, Gospel According to Mark, all right? And the reason we call it that is because it was written by a man named Mark. Almost certainly this is John Mark, who you will see uh, mentioned several times in several places in the New Testament. Um, he was not so much an eyewitness of Jesus, though it's likely that he did meet Jesus at some point, but he was a close companion of several eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus. We know that um, he was Barnabas's nephew, that uh, he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on several missionary journeys, and we also know that he was a close companion of the apostle Peter. And it's actually thought that... Um, most of Mark's gospel comes from Peter's accounts of the life of Christ. So Mark is sitting under the preaching of Peter and hearing over and over the stories of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Mark to write this gospel and record Peter's accounts of the life of Christ. So you can kind of think of the gospel of Mark as the gospel according to Peter as recorded by Mark. And uh, Mark is thought by many, um, and I would put myself in this camp, uh, to be the first of the four Gospels to be written. The three synoptic Gospels historically were written very close together in time. Um, and there's a lot of debate, and I think it's a little bit senseless about which one was first. And, you know, if Mark wrote his Gospel first, did, did Matthew and Luke have Mark's Gospel in their hands when they wrote theirs? That's an interesting debate. It's not really germane about the truth of these passages. We know that it's inspired word of God. Um, but it, it's important to note when Mark was writing and where Mark was writing. Mark was writing probably in the 50s, 60s AD, uh, and Mark was living at the time in the city of Rome. And if you know anything about world history, the Roman persecution of Christians reached its peak during that time. During the reign of Nero, mid-50s to mid-60s AD, uh, things were really bad for Christians. Worse than you or I have ever experienced by far. So um, in the 50s AD, we see historically there's a great fire in Rome. And up to that point, after the ascension of Jesus, People largely kind of let Christians do their thing in the Roman Empire. Um, they didn't like Christians, but it was like, whatever. They're really not causing that much trouble. Believe what you want to believe. Just leave us alone kind of mentality. So then there's the Great Fire of Rome, which many people believe was actually started by Nero himself for political purposes. But uh, after the Great Fire of Rome, much of Rome was destroyed. So there are 14 districts in the city of Rome at the time, and 11 of them were largely burned. And uh, three or four of them were completely obliterated, like gone, burned to the ground. People were very upset about this fire. How did this happen? Who started this fire? How come we couldn't stop it? You know, and they lost so much. And uh, they wanted to point a finger. And, and people were very quick to point their finger at the emperor, Nero. And Nero could not have that. 
could not have an uprising. He could not have people be upset. So Nero decided to point his own finger at Christians and said, well, it was the Christians. They hate Rome. They hate our society. And they burned our city down. And when that, didn't, that theory didn't take right away, Nero decided to prove it. So he started hauling in Christians and publicly executing them in order to prove his point that these people are guilty of this fire. And that's where you get stories of, you know, uh, Christians being brought out into the great circus in Rome and dressed in animal skins and they would let wild beasts rip them apart. Or Christians who were dipped in tar and then hung, strung up and lit on fire and burned alive to light Nero's garden. Or uh, Christians who were crucified um, during this period. And this is all happening in Rome, in the city of Rome, during the 50s, 60s, mostly in the 60s AD. And it is among all of this horrible, terrible stuff that's going on that Mark, in Rome, pens this gospel. And you can almost imagine the very first reading of Mark's completed gospel being read to a church hiding in the catacombs, the tunnels under the city of Rome, because they couldn't be found meeting as Christians because they would be killed. And when you kind of put Mark in its context, it sheds some light on why Mark includes some of the things he does about Jesus and why he disincludes some things and why he approaches things a certain way, because he's dealing with people who know what it means to suffer for God. That's why when Mark presents Jesus to us, the primary way he presents him is Jesus was a suffering servant. It's based largely this idea on a prophecy that you know well from Isaiah 53, which also presents Jesus as a suffering servant. All these things you're going through, all these horrible things you're experiencing right now, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. So he went through all of it and more. As Hebrews tells us, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus experienced it all. He is our example of enduring suffering. As we look at Mark, one more thing to note is that because it was written to uh, the Romans and written at this time in Rome, Mark is largely written to non-Jewish believers. Um, we get translations of Aramaic words so that the Roman readers would understand what they mean. We get uh, very little reference to Old Testament prophecy like Matthew does. Uh, it's like we're, Mark is assuming you don't know anything about the Jewish religion, and we're going to start at square one, which is also extremely helpful to get a very clear picture of the work of Christ. So we have this understanding of the background of the book of Mark, which is going to bring us right into the passage, and, and all we're going to do is we're going to take some time, and I'm going to explain this passage to you kind of verse by verse, and then at the end we're going to talk about why does it matter, and what does it mean for me. So here we are, Mark chapter 1. Verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you're reading this in your personal devotions and maybe um, you're doing like a read the Bible in a year plan, which I think is extremely ambitious, but a good thing to do, 
and you get to the book of Mark, and you start into Mark, you probably blow right past this verse, because it sounds like the first verse of a lot of New Testament books. And you're probably just like, mirror gone, okay, that was a cool introduction, let's actually get to the story. But you think about the fact that if we can assume for a moment that Mark's gospel was the first in this genre of writing that we know of as gospel writing, then every word in this introduction is very carefully chosen and very important. Let me show you how. And I would encourage you as we go through the study of the book of Mark to take some notes. Um, I'm going to try to... Uh, I've done a lot of study, a lot of study, and I'm going to try to show you some meaning to this that you wouldn't get in a cursory reading. This would be a great thing to put in your arsenal as you study God's word and as you refresh yourself and meditate on it to know what each of these things really, uh, the deeper meaning here. Okay, so let's talk first about, it says the beginning of the gospel. You're probably taught as a kid in Sunday school or Awana or Kids for Truth or whatever what the word gospel means, right? I think we probably have a firm grasp on this word. It means good news, right? Uh, and we even have songs that we sing that teach us that this word means good news. And that's true. Um, Evangelion, uh, the word, the, this Greek word literally just means good news. But we can do something that we call the etymolog uh, an, an etymological fallacy, where we just take the etymology of a word and we assume that that's what it means. So it does mean good news, but it actually is a pregnant term that would have meant much more to the people who are reading Mark for the very first time. And let me, let me explain it to you. Think about the Gentiles, the Romans, okay? This word, gospel, would not have been new to them. It was a word that had a ceremonial meaning to the Roman people. A gospel was something that already existed. It was a writing, a proclamation that would be given at the inauguration of a new Roman emperor. You can go and look this up if you want. There is a document, a historical document that we have called the Gospel of Caesar. It was written at 8 BC, before Jesus was even born, at Caesar Augustus's inauguration as the Roman emperor. And I'll kind of summarize the content of this. It's basically like, we got this new emperor. He's awesome. We're going to know peace like we've never known before. We're going to uh, know prosperity like we've never known before. Rome is going to be the biggest it's ever been. Everything is about to change because the new king is here. So if you're a Roman reader and you get your hands on this thing that Mark wrote, and the very first thing you read is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, you're going to know immediately they're announcing that this person is the king and that everything is about to change. The word gospel also would have had a pregnant meaning for the Jewish people because we know gospel means good news, and many messianic prophecies in the Old Testament begin with tidings of good news. So the idea of good news in the Jewish mind would have automatically been connected with this is the promised Messiah. 
This is God's champion that has come to fulfill God's promises to his people. So right here, we're like four or five words in, and there's all of this packed into the fact that Mark chooses this word, gospel. I think the word gospel is so familiar to us that we forget it's highly descriptive. It's a word that tells us it implies Christ's work in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. It tells us that Jesus is the king. He's the ruler of all, that we're called to serve him, that we're called to obey him above any earthly authority. We're also, it's also implied that this good news is going to be life-changing. Like I said about this announcement about emperors and how they would always say, like, everything's going to change. Rome is going to be the best it's ever been. This word gospel means that the good news is that Jesus has come and everything's going to change and your life is going to be the best it's ever been. In fact, I am convinced that the gospel is the only thing that can truly change your life. We have um, psychology, psychiatry, therapy. There are some people who are huge proponents of this. And maybe these things can soothe some symptoms of what's wrong in our lives and kind of help us muddle through. But none of these things will truly change us from the inside out. We have the idea of uh, material gain. And I was just telling my dad the other day, we have students at the school at Northland who are from Middle Eastern countries and they are obsessed with money. <laughs> and they believe that if I had enough money, all my problems would be solved and I would be happy. But the fact of the matter is that you could be the richest person in the world. You could be the Elon Musk or the Jeff Bezos or whatever. And you wouldn't really be changed. Not in any meaningful way. Uh, there are people who say, well, if you're just better, if you could just be kind, if you could just be generous, if you could just be selfless, if you could be a philanthropist, uh, it'll change you. It'll change you. It'll change your life. It'll change how you feel. And maybe it'll give you an inflated feeling of self for a while, but there's no real change happening there. But this announcement of King Jesus, this gospel, his life, the propitiation of his death, the power of his resurrection, can actually change your life. God desires to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He desires to change you from the inside out. And that is the good news of the gospel. The new king has come and everything is about to change. It's going to be better than it's ever been. We're only a few words in. I know we're spending a lot of time on verse 1, but verse 1 is the theme of the rest of the passage we're going to look at. So we're going to set this up, and then we're going to blow through the rest. So don't, don't worry about the time here. Then we have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title. If Jesus has a last name, it's of Nazareth, okay? Um, Christ is Jesus' title. It means the anointed one. It identifies Jesus as the promised Messiah, again, the champion of Yahweh, who would be sent to right every wrong and deliver God's promises to his people. Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises to all mankind and especially to his people. At his first coming... Jesus, born in Bethlehem, 
you know, of a virgin and all that. At his first coming, Jesus fulfilled God's promise to change hearts. He fulfilled the promise of the single sacrifice to replace and supersede all sacrifices. He fulfilled the promise to restore God's presence among us, a presence that had been taken away because of our sin, and a presence not now in a temple made of stone, but in a temple made of the hearts of his people. Jesus, Messiah, at his first coming, he fulfilled all these promises and many more. But we also know that at his second coming, Jesus, Christ, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, will fulfill the rest of God's promises. God's promise to judge sin. God's promise to bring societal justice. The promise to bind Satan and eradicate sin from the world. The promise to bless Israel. The promise to end death and the curse once and for all. A new Eden. The promise to establish his kingdom among men. These are all things that Jesus, the Christ, will fulfill because he is the one who brings God's promises. You see how like this introduction by Mark, it's not haphazard. It's not that copy and paste from something that he, he read or heard somewhere. Every single word that is chosen for this verse is so intentional and would have rung so true and so meaningful to its original readers. And that's something I want us to recapture. Jesus Christ is not a last name. It's a sovereign title. For the anointed one who fulfills God's promises. And as that anointed one, as the Messiah, as God's champion, he deserves our faith. For us to believe him. He deserves our praise. For us to bow before him. He deserves our devotion. For us to live for him. In fact, scripture tells us he deserves our whole selves. Everything you can give, he deserves. But Mark's introduction doesn't stop there. He has one more title to throw in, just so we're real clear before we get in. And it's really important, actually, that Mark gives us such a clear first verse because much of Mark, he's going to stress the fact that Jesus uh, used a lot of parables and there was a lot of secrecy and he didn't always openly profess himself to be Messiah because his time had not, been, had not yet come for him to die. And so... Through all the secrecy, Mark is like, just so we're clear, before I tell this story, this is who Jesus is, and we're all going to be clear about it right from the get-go. So here's the last title, the Son of God. Actually, Jesus' sonship is one of the prevalent themes in Mark's short gospel. He wants his readers to know that this Messiah, this Christ, this champion, is not a mere man. Though he has a gospel, an announcement like Caesar, he's not like Caesar. He's not like John the Baptist. He's not like the priests or the prophets because he is not just a man. He is the Son of God. He is divine. A person cannot be a Christian. A person cannot call himself a Christian or consider himself to be a Christian if he does not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is divine. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. They, they claim to be Christians. If you go like read like statistics about Christianity in America, they'll include Jehovah's Witnesses as Christians. But they're not because they believe that Jesus Christ is a created being. He's the archangel uh, Michael in, in human form. 
is not Christianity because that's not what the Bible tells us Jesus is. Mormons are not Christians. They believe that Jesus is a created being. He's the brother of Satan. And, you know, good brother, bad brother, yin and yang kind of thing. They can't be Christians because they don't believe that Jesus is divine. In fact, a shocking percentage of people, especially in our country, who call themselves Christians, are not Christian at all. They cannot be because they do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the divine Son of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Mark makes no bones about it. He doesn't want you to be confused by any of the stories that are about to come. This is who Jesus is. He is divine. He is fully God and fully man. Scripture does not split hairs about this. You know the famous quote by uh, C.S. Lewis. Excuse me just one second. I've got like this cold that never ends. It's been like over two weeks. I don't think it's contagious anymore, but it just won't go away. Um, if you don't want to shake my hand at the service, I totally understand. I will not be upset. All right. Um, C.S. Lewis has a famous quote. Um, he talks about the fact that Jesus, as he's presented in Scripture, he must be divine. He must be. And he says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him as a liar, or you can bow down and worship him as a son of God. And he says, don't come before him with any patronizing nonsense about being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, which is totally true. If you're reading the same Bible I am, Jesus is divine. Excuse me. <coughs> All right. Why do we spend so much time in this first verse? It's almost noon, and we're going to cover a few more verses here. It's important that we have a grasp on where Mark is coming from and what he presents as the theme of his book, because everything we're going to study, and I don't know if you're going to be happy about this or not, but probably for the next year of morning services, hangs on this truth that Mark believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the King, and that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, Everything else hangs on this truth. That's Mark's whole point. And then we also get this theme that's not mentioned here at the beginning, but will be mentioned of the suffering servant. So let's read verse 2 together. And Mark is going to transition out of this opening verse into this first story. He, he transitions with one of the book's very, very few references to Old Testament prophecy. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We're about to be introduced to a biblical character by the name of John the Baptist, who serves as the last Old Testament prophet. You say, wait a minute, this is the New Testament. How can he be an Old Testament prophet? Well, at this point in history, what has not happened yet? Jesus hasn't died on the cross or rose from the dead. So everybody you're going to read about before that happens is an Old Testament saint. And John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. So in history, in, history, in Israel, prophecy had ceased for well over 300 years. Okay, we call it the 400 years of silence. Not quite 400 years, but close to 400 years where there's no prophecy. There are no prophets. There's no foretelling. The office of prophet had pretty much ended. There were false prophets in this time who shared Terrible things that still resonate in certain denominations of Christianity. Um, 
but there are no true prophets. And the people of Israel basically recognized this at this time, and they actually, there was a common belief that the gift of prophecy had ended. God is done. He's given us all the prophecy he's going to give. But there was one missing piece of the puzzle because the prophecy that they had pointed to the return of Elijah. We have these prophecies, and we have two of them referenced in verse 2. That's a split of two prophecies, one from Malachi and one from Isaiah, um, where um, there's this prophecy that there's gonna, Elijah's going to come back. You know, Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven. Elijah's going to come back, and he's going to finish what he started. And the last thing Elijah is going to do is he's going to announce the coming of Messiah. And so the, the Jews are like, okay, so it seems like prophecy has ended, but Elijah never came back. So they're actually waiting for the coming of Elijah. And here's a little anecdote. We're not going to finish this morning. We're going to have to do this tonight. I hate that. I'm sorry. It's so good, though. You're learning a lot. I hope you're taking notes. I learned so much studying this passage. Okay. Right now, if you are to attend a Jewish Passover feast, like they have, I forget the name of it, but there's a, a special meal that they have, and they have all these symbolic things that you eat, and there's one thing you eat that's supposed to be so bitter that you cry, and like, it's all symbolic about the Passover. It's pretty cool. Typically, if you were to sit down with a Jewish family at their Passover feast, there would be one extra glass on the table. Do you know what that glass is for? Elijah. Because they know that there's this prophecy that Elijah's going to come back and finish what he started. What Mark is telling us is that Elijah is not literally coming back, but John the Baptist is taking up the mantle of Elijah to finish Elijah's ministry. And John the Baptist is going to announce to us the Messiah is here. He's the real deal. And actually, all four of the gospel writers make a big deal about John the Baptist because his witness was a significant proof to the Jews and to the Gentiles that Jesus was who he said he was. And let me tell you this. We know historically, especially from the writings of the first century um, historian Josephus, we know that the Jewish people widely agreed that John the Baptist was a legitimate prophet. Like, it was widely accepted that John the Baptist was a verifiable prophet. And there is an Old Testament system for verifying that prophets truly are prophets. We're not going to get into that. But it was widely accepted that John the Baptist is the real deal. And people were getting excited because John the Baptist is saying, we got to get ready, we got to prepare the way, because Messiah is almost here. In fact, Josephus tells us, the way that Josephus describes John's following, uh, it is safe to assume that John the Baptist had more followers than Jesus ever did in his earthly ministry. There were tons of people who loved John the Baptist, even though he's a little quirky, and we might have to talk about that tonight, even though he's a little quirky, even though he's a little odd, they love John the Baptist, and they're getting really excited about the coming Messiah. They're all jumping on the train to follow John the Baptist. Until John the Baptist says, here he is. And people look at Jesus and go, nah. <laughs> Can't be him. He's not riding on a horse. He doesn't have his armor on. That guy has no military experience. How is he going to take over Rome? How is he going to give us back our land? 
They're like, ah, John, we think you're, we think you're a great guy, but you can't possibly be right. So we have this, this, this uh, important prophecy that points to John the Baptist is coming. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Look at uh, verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness um, and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. I want you to notice something real quick before we talk about the baptism of John for a minute, which is where we're going to end. And it's actually a really good place to end because we're going to learn a little something about salvation from the baptism of John. But notice where John goes to baptize. Two descriptive words. One is a very specific place, the River Jordan. And the other is kind of a generic term, the wilderness, the desert. Actually, we're going to see as we go through chapter 1, Mark comes back and again and again and again and again to this word wilderness. It's very important to Mark that we talk about these people going out to the wilderness. Think about the Israelites' connection to the wilderness. You remember a time in Jewish history that was very significant that has to do with wilderness? And what were the people of Israel doing in the wilderness? They were headed towards God's promise. They had to come out from the comfortable. They had to come out from the familiar. They had to cross Jordan into God's promise. And of course, they spent a lot of time in the wilderness because they were very unfaithful. But this is clearly symbolic, and this is something that God is doing very intentionally, calling God's people out to the wilderness to show them, you need to come out from your familiar, you need to come out from your way of living, you need to come out from what you always thought to be true because God's promise is coming and it may not be what you expect it to be. And then so John brings these people out and he baptizes them. We call John John the Baptist, which is almost an unfortunate name because John was not a Baptist. <laughs> I was talking to a guy a few weeks ago who was not a Christian, but he was like, oh, so like, you know, the Wesley brothers, they started these denominations and, you know, Peter started the Catholic Church, which is very an oversimplification at best, and we're not going to talk about that, and like such and so started this, and John the Baptist started the Baptists. Like, no, John was not a Baptist. In fact, John was not a New Testament Christian. He died before Jesus died, so he was an Old Testament saint. He was not a Baptist, okay? Um, if we were to maybe have a non-traditional translation of John's title, it would be John the Baptizer, because this thing that he did was pretty unusual. Take people out to the Jordan. He would say, Messiah is coming. Prepare your heart for Messiah. Confess your sins and repent of them and look for Messiah with me. Join me. We're going to live right and we're going to look for Messiah. And uh, so they were not being baptized into Christ the way that New Testament believers are baptized to identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. They were being baptized to join John in looking for the coming Messiah. So it's not believer's baptism, and we know that for sure because later on in the, in, 
in history, in, in the story of the book of Acts, um, the Apostle Paul happens upon some disciples of John who aren't saved, and they get saved, and then Paul tells them they need to be baptized again, because what they had was John's baptism, and they needed to be baptized unto Christ. It's a very interesting thing that really only happened for 100 years in history, where there's this transitionary thing, but what John is saying is, and I've already said this, John is saying, come out here, be baptized, and here are the reasons. One, be baptized to show that you know that you are a sinner and you need Messiah. And be baptized, too, to join this group of us who are waiting for him to come. And here's what's important for us to know, and we're going to end here and we'll pick up here tonight, and there's so much more. I hope you come back tonight because there's so much more. But here's where we'll end. John is showing us an essential truth about salvation that is going to ring through the Gospels again and again. If you want to be in Christ, you must recognize that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself and you must repent, which we learned this morning in Sunday school about the Hebrew word repent. I'm going to tell you about the Greek word repent. I've said this before. It means to turn around, to change your mind. I'm no longer going to think of myself as mighty enough to save myself, myself as a good person. I'm no longer going to think of myself as an enemy of God. I'm going to turn from my sin to Christ. And it is rampant in Christianity today, and maybe you haven't experienced it, and that's God's blessing. It is rampant to leave repentance out of salvation. To say, God loves you. He wants what's best for you, which is true. This is all true. God loves you. He wants what's best for you. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to experience him. In a sense, all of that is true. But there's a thing that they do, and they never tell you, you are rotten. You are broken. And you cannot be fixed without Christ. That's the message people don't want to hear. And I'm afraid that Christendom today is full of people who think they're Christians and they're not because they have never turned from their sin to God. They just tacked Jesus on to everything else that they want in their life. I, had, I taught this in a Sunday school class one time, a third and fourth grade Sunday school class. We were going through the book of Matthew and we came to a very similar passage where Jesus is preaching, repent. And I'm teaching these kids about repentance in very simple terms. But I had a mom sit in my Sunday school class, which is something that I encourage. And I had a mom sit in my Sunday school class, and she came to me after the lesson, and she was like, did you just tell my child that they have to repent to be saved? And I was like, actually, Jesus said it, technically. <laughs> and she was like, repentance is a work. And there is no works we can do to be saved. And I was like, repentance is not a work. If you believe in Jesus, if you say you believe in Jesus, but you don't believe that you're a sinner, you really don't believe in the Jesus I know. You cannot have true faith in Christ without a true understanding of just how much you need him. That's what repentance really is. It's a recognition. I am bad and I need to turn from my sin and believe that Christ can save me. Um, maybe there's somebody here today, and this is something that is totally foreign to you. I don't know your heart. Maybe you've been coming to church your whole life, and you've been trying to do the good person thing, 
and you consider yourself to be a Christian because you come to church. But you've never repented of your sin and turned to Christ and put your faith in him for salvation. You're not a Christian if you haven't. But God wants you to be in Christ. He wants to, and I've said this twice already, so here's the third time's a charm. He wants to take your heart of stone. He wants to give you a heart of flesh. He wants to change you from the inside out. He wants to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to know him and be in him. I hope that if this is news to you, that you'll talk to me before we leave today, and I can show you from the Bible how you can know Jesus Christ as your Savior, how you can turn to him and repent. But repentance is something that we need to do often, even for those of us who are in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Because our sin will not be, will not be done with our sin until we stand before the Lord glorified. I sin. I sin every single day, guaranteed. I sin every single day. We're called to continually turn from that sin to Christ, to take that sin before his throne, to say, God, I, I want to live for you. I want to stop doing these things that uh, my flesh leads me to do. I want to live for you. I want to be different. I want to be changed. I hope you spend time with God every day, and I hope that the part of your time with God that you're not leaving out is repentance and confession of sin. This is, this is how we keep our hearts right before the Lord. This is how the Holy Spirit does a work in us. So I hope when you go to pray, you don't just say, God, help me to be able to pay my bills this month, uh, help my kids to be healthy. These are all things to pray for. That's fine. But I hope that you say, God, I fell short. Here are some areas where I know I did, and I bet there are some that I don't. And I need your help to change. I want to be more like Jesus Christ tomorrow than I was today. Forgive me for those sins. Help me to live for you tomorrow. I'm committing myself to it. That's repentance. It's not just something that unbelievers are called to. It's something believers are called to as well. It's the message of John the Baptist. Repent. The baptism of repentance. Prepare the way of the Lord. We're definitely out of time. I hope you'll come back tonight. We'll consider the rest of the message of John the Baptist together. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for the depth of your word and the fact that each time we look into it, we learn something new about you, certainly, possibly something new about history, which is great, but we also learn about ourselves. We learn how much we need Jesus. And even those of us who have Jesus, the more we learn, the more we realize how badly we need him. Thank you that your word convicts, that it cuts deeply into our souls to change us. Lord, as we leave uh, from the service this morning, would we be changed? Would we be living lives of repentance, that we continually turn from our sin and turn to God, and that that repentance be shown in the fruit of how we live, that it would be seen in the world so that others might know Christ as well. I ask your hand of blessing on this church as we go from here. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.